Welcome back to another episode of Employment Law Problems, where I, your host, Brett Hollebeck, discuss some of the most pressing labor and employment issues facing companies today. In this episode, we were discussing the National Labor Relations Act, and in particular, what to do when you receive a charge from the National Labor Relations Board. That is, what do you do when you have a charge from the government agency that enforces the act, alleging that you violated the act in some way? And so in this episode, we'll be talking about some steps that you can take once you receive that charge, a little bit about what the National Labor Relations Board does, and some thought, thoughts on you know what to do when a charge is, is completed and you've you fought the charge and you've tried your best to defend the suit against your company. And with that, we're going to go to the very first part of this episode. Welcome back. So we're discussing one of my favorite laws uh, that I work with as a labor and employment attorney, the National Labor Relations Act. And one of the most interesting things and something that a lot of people don't understand is that the National Labor Relations Act applies to both unionized and non-unionized workplaces. Now, there are some some jurisdictional standards that you need to meet for the National Labor Relations Act to apply to a particular business. But generally speaking, the National Labor Relations Act is going to apply to more or less all businesses, barring some exceptions, which I'll briefly go through right now just so I'll give you an idea. So a retailer business will fall under it if they have a gross annual volume of business of $500,000 or more. So there is a lower threshold limit for shopping centers and office buildings of 100000 So most of these jurisdictional limits are related to a dollar threshold. Uh, non-retailers, non-retailers need to have a annual inflow or outflow of goods of at least $50,000. Channels of interstate commerce, so these are shipping companies, buses, warehouses, packing houses, $50,000 gross annual volume. Healthcare institutions have to have a gross annual volume at least $250,000. And for nursing homes, $100,000. Law firms, $250,000 gross annual in volume of, of you know profits, sales their services, cultural and educational centers for private and nonprofit colleges, universities, schools, museums, the annual minimum is 1 million. Um, Private contractors who work for the federal government are under NLRB jurisdiction. Religious organizations, the board does not assert jurisdiction over those organizations that are uh, involved in effectuating the religious purpose of the organization, such as teachers and church operated schools. But they do assert jurisdiction over employees who work in the operations of a religious organization that did not have a religious charter or religious character, such as a healthcare organization. And then Indian tribes. So the board jurisdiction over the commercial enterprises owned and operated by Indian tribes uh, has jurisdiction over those organizations, even if they are located on a tribal reservation but they don't assert jurisdiction over any kind of enterprise that carries out tribal or governmental functions. Finally, there's some things that are explicitly excluded from jurisdiction by the NLRB. So federal, state, and local governments, that includes public schools, libraries, parks, wholly government-owned corporations, employers who employ only agricultural laborers, those engaged in farming operations that cultivate or harvest agricultural commodities or premier commodities for delivery, And finally, any employer subject to the Railway Labor Act, that would include, you know, railway operators, railway companies, 
or airlines. So if you meet one of those exceptions, you can see that most of the employers in the country are going to be required to follow the National Labor Relations Act, which really brings us to the next question. You know, what is the National Labor Relations Act? What does that mean? Um, you know, I've said it probably a dozen times throughout this podcast, but it's still not clear to most people what rights are covered. And most, a lot of companies get them wrong. So the National Labor Relations Act and the National Labor Relations Board, which enforces the act, the National Labor Relations Act grants employees the right to unionize, to join together to advance their interest as employees, and to refrain from such activity. So they don't have to do it. So there are basically two components of the National Labor Relations Act that most often are talked about. Section 7, which guarantees employees the right to self-organization, to form, join, or assist labor organizations, to bargain collectively through representatives, sorry, representatives of their own choosing, and to engage in other concerted activities for the purpose of collective bargaining or other mutual aid or protection, as well as the right to refrain from such activities. And then Section 8, uh, 8A1, which makes it unlawful, it's an unfair labor practice for an employer to interfere with, restrain, or coerce employees in the exercise of rights guaranteed under Section 7. So let me break that down a little bit. So under Section 7, you have the right to join a union, to decide to you do a union organizing campaign and try to unionize the company, to engage in other concerted activities for the purpose of mutual aid or protection. That could be things where you're raising a... Uh, a complaint to your employer on behalf of all the other employees that can be discussing you know your salary is off, is protected under the national labor relations act which is something a lot of employers get wrong you are permitted to discuss your salary and to ask other employees about their salary now you're not permitted to reveal you know other members uh, other employees salaries typically uh, when you're especially when you have access to that information through uh, some kind of confidential relationship, such as you're their manager, you're the HR representative, but employees can discuss their salary. And then Section 8A1, as I talked about, is interfering with those rights. So employers cannot threaten employees if they support a union, engage in union activity, select a union to represent them. They can't threaten employees with adverse consequences if they engage in concerted protected activity. And again, that's that's activity that is done, you know, for or with the authority of other employees. It's not solely by and, behind, uh, by and on behalf of the employee themselves, but it could be instance where a single employee seeks to initiate, induce, or you know, prepare for group action. So you know, when somebody's trying to gather signatures or something like that, they haven't talked to anybody yet. You know, that would probably be considered protected activity. But discussing your own working conditions, like I shouldn't have been disciplined, probably not going to be considered protected activity. Now, saying that nobody should be disciplined for this particular violation, that's probably going to be considered protected activity. So there are a lot of things that employers cannot do in these sorts of circumstances. And typically, they're broken down into tips. Tips, we already talked, the T in tips we already talked about, which is threaten. Promise. You can't promise employees increased benefits if they don't join a union. You can't interrogate employees when they're engaging in union organizing. Uh, you know, ask them questions about 
their activities, you know, who supports the union, who doesn't support the union, where are you guys meeting, you know, what are you guys thinking about the union? Are you guys going to vote for the union? Are you guys going to support the company? You can't engage in that kind of interrogation and spying. So you can't go and spy on employees. If they're all going to be at a certain restaurant to talk about the union or somewhere else, you cannot go and spy on them, even though it's a public place, you could still be found to be in violation of the law. And again, as I mentioned, all these protect all workplaces, not just workplaces that are uh, unionized. And I want to break this up into a second section. So in the next segment, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about what happens when your company violates the National Labor Relations Act. What do you do? You've gotten a charge. Where do you go from here? So with that, we're going to end this part and move on to the second, second part of this episode. So what happens when a company gets an unfair labor practice charge? So an unfair labor practice charge, first we need to know, is filed by an employee or the union against a company. Now, it is possible for employers to file charges against the union for violations from the union, but that's not the focus of the podcast. That's not what we're talking about today. An example of that may be when a union threatens employees that they will lose their jobs, they will be fired if they you know, vote against the union or decertify the union or do something like that. So that kind of threat from the union could be a violation of the National Labor Relations Act. My experience has been that the National Labor Relations Board has not been very active and willing to pursue those kinds of charges, but those sorts of things could be possible. So again, the typical process is that an employee or the union will file a charge with the National Labor Relations Board. There's just not enough manpower for the National Labor Relations Board to seek out and file charges on their own behalf. Now, really, truthfully, anybody can file a charge against a company if they're aware of a violation. So you don't tend to need to be an employer union member, but just it just is the very typical way that these charges are filed. Now, there's been some examples of various individuals posting things on Twitter or other public sites that are then reported by people on those sites that are not employees of the company. The typical process is not going to involve that level of public possible violation that results in a charge against the company. So some of the most common examples that lead to a charge is forbidding employees to discuss their salaries, which I discussed, firing or disciplining employees that discuss the union or solicit employees to sign union authorization cards, which are the cards that are needed before you can actually have a union election, or disciplining or firing employees that complain about working conditions, pay, safety issues that are doing so, you know, in, in a concerted manner, you know, with or on the behalf of a larger group of employees. So what's the best approach when you get an unfair labor practice charge? I mean, obviously, the first thing to remember is to avoid violations of the law. You always want to try to avoid violations of the law if possible. And the supervisors at a company, HR, owners, upper-level managers of management, those are going to be people that are going to be able to have charges filed against the company. So if they commit a violation, if a supervisor threatens an employee with termination for discussing their salary, the company is going to get an NLRB charge against them. So the best way to avoid an unfair labor practice charge is really to train your managers, supervisors, and HR staff on what they can and cannot do, which again is typically tips, which is what I've already talked about before. You can't threaten an employee for engaging in union activity or protected concerted activity. You can't interrogate employees about maybe their union organizing 
You can't promise. You can't promise employees benefits if they support the company over the union. And you can't spy on employees when they have, you know, a meeting discussing the union or something like that. There's a typical process that occurs when you have a an NLRB charge against you. So if you've done your best to avoid those violations, you've trained your members and management, typically what happens is that there will first be a charge. A charge will be filed with the National Labor Relations Board alleging the various violations that you've committed. The NLRB can expand the investigation during the course of that investigation. It's just kind of going to depend on what happens. So the companies that receive a charge, you really need to act fast. You should seek legal counsel if you're not represented. And you want to carefully read the late, the, the charge and see what it says. So who was involved in the incident? When did they occur? What violation does the charge allege that the company committed? That's going to be the, the beginning of your investigation. Because as I said before, these typically happen when somebody files a charge at the company, an employee. This is usually or oftentimes going to be the very first time you've heard about whatever allegations is being made in the charge. So find out who was, who was involved. Who do you need to investigate? Who do you need to talk with? When did the violations occur? Was this within the time frame that they had to file a charge or not? The employer is also going to receive a questionnaire on commerce information. And that gets back to those jurisdictional thresholds that I discussed in the very first part of the episode that many companies just decide to move forward with and admit that the company is under the jurisdiction of the NLRB. You typically don't want to reveal more information you need to. So that's something that a lot of companies will do. And employers need to be very careful about speaking with employees that were witnesses to the events leading to the NLRB unfair labor practice charge. Because again, you can't, you can't interrogate employees about activity that is protected under the act. So this is a mistake that a lot of companies make. I've seen ex- attorneys that are inexperienced in the NLR proceedings and process make this mistake. It's something that you don't want to avoid. You want, <laughs> you want to make sure you don't get into because it opens a whole new can of worms. Um, but essentially, there is an obligation for employers under what's called Johnny Poultry Notices to give a Johnny Poultry's notice to, to workers that you're going to interview and you know talk with. And in the Johnny Poultry's notice, you alert employees that the purpose of the questioning, so the purpose of the questioning may, for example, be to determine whether or not a manager made a threat against an employee for engaging in union activity. So you're communicating that purpose of the questioning. You're ensuring employees that no reprisals will take place for refusing to answer any question or for whatever substance the answer that they give. And you're obtaining the employee's participation in the interview on a voluntary basis. Those are three important components of a Johnny Poultry's notice that the employee will sign, you will keep, and save for later. And you need to let them know that the interview is also voluntary and that it can be stopped at any time. You should also let them know that they're not going to get any benefit or punishment from speaking with you or, you know, the employee's attorney. And you should never speak, obviously, with a charging party. One important exception to this, this does not apply to members of management or human resources professionals. But you must meet the definition of manager or supervisor under the act, and that can be another issue. And you typically will benefit from conducting your own internal investigation instead of simply responding to the allegations and trying to resolve the process with the NLRB. You you do want to move forward um, as quickly as possible. So there are some things that could happen after the charge is filed. So the un- the regional director will determine the level of investigation. Will it be a formal investigation, an informal investigation? What actions will they take in that investigation? Will they seek an injunction? Will they ask the court for a temporary restraining order that 
requires the company to stop certain practices? Will they withdraw, refuse to uh, issue complaint or settlement? So, you know, it's possible that there is something that is just clearly not a protected activity and the employer is not going to face serious investigation because it's not something that violates the act. So that's also a possibility. Now, one thing that might happen in the investigation process is that the NLRB may want to take affidavits from management witnesses. So when they're deciding to make their termination of whether their charge should proceed to an ALJ, or if the NLRB should dismiss the charge during this investigation, uh, this investigation, the NLRB may want to speak to members of management. They may want to talk to them directly. So again, you want to have your attorney present. It's not really a, one of the most interesting things about the NLRB process is that the employer does not get to seek any information from the NLRB or the charging party, basically. You know, there are some instances where, you know, some member of the NLRB will provide information that's necessary to respond to the charge. Um, or sometimes they'll provide information that's helpful for resolving the case that may be otherwise available to the plaintiff. Um, for example, I've had um, instances where they provided recordings of hearings that were relevant to the case. So, you know, recording of a hearing that involved a, a, the company, they the NLRB provided. It was a public hearing, you know, for a, a court case. And it was available and it was helpful to resolve the case just to move things forward in a quicker manner. But typically, you're not going to be able to get any discovery from the NLRB. You will give, management may give affidavits, they may not give affidavits. And when the NLRB asks for affidavits, you really have a few options. You can refuse to provide any information to the investigator, which typically is going to result in a complaint being issued against the company because the only evidence will be from the charging party. So the employer may wish to do this if they believe that it's going to go to a hearing anyway before an administrative law judge because the NLRB will ultimately issue a complaint and you don't really want to give more information that's necessary in, the, in this particular case because the information could be shared with the charging party or you know used against you later by the NLRB because the NLRB investigatory unit will you know, investigate the case, but then there's also a unit that will prosecute, essentially, you sort of prosecute, but will litigate the case against the company. So sometimes you want to reject and not provide any information to the investigator. That's a choice to make. And the NLRB rarely seeks an investigative subpoena to force the employer to provide information. So it's likely you'll just face the complaint. Now that's changing a little bit, but typically you won't face a subpoena to provide the, to be forcing you to provide the information. You could call the investigator, orally discuss the company's position, but refuse to make management witnesses available for affidavits or to provide documents. Again, the NLRB may seek to subpoena you and to get that information elsewise, or you can provide management witnesses for affidavits, have an attorney present to, to assist the witnesses, and you know possibly even draft a response to the allegations and file a statement of position explaining your defenses before the affidavits are taken. So there's some important things to consider when you are providing management witnesses for affidavits. The affidavits, as I said, are critically important because they help the NLRB determine what happened. And if something is said incorrectly in the affidavit, the opposing party is going to use that against the company should the case go to a hearing. The NLRB or the union, if they're the charging party, will impeach company witnesses with incorrect statements. And really no company wants that to happen to them, which is why preparation is critical.
Each attorney and witnesses present during this, this process can review the affidavit that the NLRB takes. Typically, the NLRB will take the affidavit using a computer so the witness or their attorney can find errors and fix them. And you typically want to get the investigator to make a clean copy with the changes that you made from the affidavit. You don't want it to look like you marked this up a ton because that document can later be used against you in court if it goes through a hearing before the ALJ. You need to be very careful. Witnesses need to be very careful about statements like, spoke with no individuals about the incident. I don't remember anything further. There's nothing further. Those kinds of statements can be tricky. You want to try to keep the door open to make some changes later on if necessary. You may see things like, you know, there may be other documents or other testimony that may may cause me to remember additional information. But this time, this is all I, I can recall. Something like that may be better than something more black and white, like I spoke with no other individuals about the incident. Well, sometimes that turns out not to be true. Sometimes during an investigation, during the affidavits, it's possible that the investigator misses a critical question that you want to get into the record. And it's also possible that, you know, just they miss something. They miss an important aspect of something. There's a whole other area that you need to get into to better explain what happened. And the affidavit is really your chance to make that happen. So if you feel that something is necessary for them to know, but they didn't actually go through, you can just speak up, make it known. So after the affidavits are completed, you may provide an additional statement of position concerning the facts in the case. And it's really your last chance to state your position and defenses before the NLRB reaches its conclusion on the unfair labor practice charge. Once the NLRB makes a determination, they'll either dismiss all the allegations, basically the employer wins, the charging party will draw the charge. Again, the employer pretty much wins. They'll dismiss some of the allegations or dismiss none of the allegations. If the NLRB dismisses all the allegations, there's nothing left for the employer to do, and the case is over. If there's any allegations that are remaining, then it's probably going to be time to consider settlement. You know, you can do this earlier in the process uh, through an informal settlement, and oftentimes an informal settlement is the way to go before the NLRB has reached a determination. But sometimes you don't want to have an informal settlement. Sometimes you want to you want to move things down a little further because you want to you want to chip away at some of the allegations that are completely bogus and don't have any bearing in the case. And you may not want to settle the case right away. But if there's a settlement agreement with the NLRB, typically what will happen is that the NLRB will require, you know, an order from the board. And there may be other requirements that the NLRB will enforce, sometimes notice posting and other things as well. So if you do not settle the case, the case will go before a hearing, before the administrative law judge. So the administrative law judge will hear the case and they will make a determination on the allegations in the case. Now, again, they may not review every allegation because some may have been dismissed. They may not make it a trial. And the ALJ will review all the information. They'll make a, they'll make a recommendation to order the company to cease and desist from the unfair labor practice and grant affirmative relief or dismiss the complaint. If there's no timely exceptions filed to the administrative law judge's decision, then the findings of the ALJ automatically become the findings of the court and the board, I should say. If you file exceptions, then the board could hear the case in person, you know, through a hearing. The board could hear the case through a paper hearing, essentially, where you're not submitting anything. There's not any kind of argument. There's not any kind of hearing, but you're submitting a brief. And during that process, again, the board may dismiss the case. They find that the, the employer did not commit any unfair labor practice violations. 
They could remand the case back to the lower ALJ, or they could issue an order finding that the employer committed unfair labor practices and ordering them to cease and desist and to remedy the practices. If you want to go further, you can. So you can appeal it to the Court of Appeals to either get enforced, force the decision of the ALJ, set aside or remand all or part of the case, and then the U.S. Supreme Court will review appeals from the Court of Appeals. So that's the typical NLRB process. That's how the process works. Of course, there are a lot of things you cannot do during this, this process. Um, it's always best to consult with a lawyer to determine what actions you can and cannot take. And the process is something that not a lot of attorneys have experience with. So it's important to reach out to with and work with someone who does. And with that, we're going to turn it over to the very last part of the episode to wrap up another episode of Employment Law Problem. That concludes this episode of Employment Law Problems. Uh, your host, Brett, uh, talked about some of the most pressing issues when your company receives an NLRB charge, and I hope you took some things away from it. With that being said, if you enjoyed this episode, I ask you to like and subscribe, and I will catch you in the next episode.